Hey there, thank you for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live and worldwide. Thanks to our friends at speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a meeting planner or you're a speaker, visit the Speaker Match Marketplace and figure out what you're going to do when these conferences start happening in person again, or you're going to speak virtually. Speakermatch.com is the place to go. Well, today we're going to talk to a real Renaissance guy. He's a singer, a songwriter, a broadcaster, an actor, uh, a playwright. He's done a little bit of everything. Uh, Larry Gross, my friend who's the host of Mountain Stage, joins us. So let's go all the way back. You're a Texas boy originally. Grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, right? Yeah, I grew up in Dallas, Texas itself, not in the suburbs. And um, uh, I, I lived there. My parents uh, were both from, they both were born around Dallas. And uh, my relatives, my grandparents and their parents were actually from this part of the world. If you trace my lineage back, it goes to North Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, Missouri, the way people came to Texas, really. So I, that, that was, this, I, I stayed there. I graduated from high school there in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. But then I left when I was 18 and I'd never lived there again. I visited, but I'd never really lived there after I went off to college. Your mom and dad, uh, musical at all? How did, how did music become an interest for you? Well, they, were, they, they did not perform or anything, but they both could sing. My dad played the guitar a little bit. Uh, his parents both played uh, fiddle, and, and my grandmother played the Hawaiian-style guitar, and, and his mother played, uh, I mean, that's his mother, and his father played fiddle. So there was some musical heritage there, but they loved music, and they played in the house a lot of music. They were of the era of, uh, and of the, the ilk, of uh, you know, Frank Sinatra and musicals and the big bands and that sort of stuff. So I, I had music around, uh, that kind of music around. Uh, and, and then they also liked, uh, you know, country and rockabilly and so forth, Elvis Presley and all that stuff. So uh, that's, that was the earliest music that I heard on being played on records. So what got you interested in, in performing and, and actually doing this for a job? Well, I started singing uh, in school, like a lot of people, back when there was much more music in schools. Uh, and, and at the same time, I listened to the radio, uh, and, and I was drawn to uh, the kind of acoustic folk music, which at that time was popular and was on the radio. Bands like the Kingston Trio... Uh, was or sounded good to me, although I also liked the regular rock and pop music and so forth, and country music too. But I was particularly drawn to the folk music. And uh, then my mother and father gave me uh, a guitar when I was 13, and I learned how to play. Kind of, my grandfather taught me a few chords, uh, but that was it. And then I was kind of on my own. But I, I kept learning because I had friends who also were playing instruments, so we got together and kind of taught each other. That's the way that I learned music. And then I started getting more into uh, the folk side of music when I was uh, in my early teens. Uh, and believe it or not, I was attracted to um, Bob Dylan. And I found out, I bought his first record. I found out recently as I was doing research that only they only sold 2,500 of those records, but somehow a... Uh, you know, 14-year-old kid in, in Dallas heard about it and bought it. And I, I was listening to other kinds of the early singer-songwriters at the same time. 
as I say, as well as the commercial folk music. And I had some friends who were older than me who were very, very much into the, uh, the Pete Seeger kind of, uh, folk, uh, the people who were more traditionalists. And so I, I listened to some of that older music and, um, then I just began to, to get records and buy books, um, and bought Lomax's folk songs in North America and listened to a much more, uh, Roots-oriented music from the commercial folk. I went to more of the traditional folk and learned about a lot of people, you know, from Doc Watson to Flatten Scrubs and and older older of the some of the older folk folks too. And I just was drawn to that kind of music. And funny enough, but way back then, with the Judy Collins and the Kingston Trio and some others, I was really drawn to the songs of Billy Ed Wheeler. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know where he was from. But later on, it turned out to play a, a big part of my life. And for whatever reason, that the sound of songs like Cold Tattoo and Red Wing Blackbird were very, they got to me. And here you are all these years later as the host of Mountain Stage and artistic director there. Larry Gross is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, powered by Speaker Match. Now, if I do my math correctly, and, and that is not my strong suit, I'll be the first to say, but you would have been in high school in Dallas when President Kennedy was assassinated there. Uh, so I'm sure you have vivid memories. Uh, I wonder if you could sort of take us back to November 22nd, 1963. What do you remember? Yeah, you're correct. You're, you're, you're correct. I was a sophomore in high school. And where I lived... My high school, Adamson High School in Oak Cliff, Texas, part of Dallas, was only two or three blocks from where Lee Harvey Oswald lived. Wow. And the Texas Theater, the Texas Theater where they captured him was only about five blocks from my high school, five or six blocks. And I didn't go that day. My dad went to, to the downtown to watch him drive by. There were a lot of people from my high school that skipped school because you could, you could actually walk from the high school across what we call the viaduct, a bridge, there was a river separating Dallas. And so you could walk to the downtown. It only take you 30 minutes or so. Uh, and so kids walked, other kids got rides. They went downtown to see, you know, to see the parade, to see the motorcade. And I remember a kid that I know coming back, I saw him and he was walking on the school grounds. And I said, Hey, how was it? And the first thing he said to me was, uh, they shot, they shot him. And I said, what? And he said, they shot Kennedy. I said, no. He said, they shot Connolly too. Wow. I said, who did? What are you talking about? When, when he said, I don't know. And when, you know, we, we, I was like, I thought, you know, that's, that's BS. What are you doing? It's not funny. And about that time, the loud, the, the loud speakers came on the, you know, classroom and called everybody back to your home room. And so we sat there and then they informed us what had happened as it went, as it was going, as it going on, you know, taking Kennedy to Parkland hospital, he was declared, well, before, even before he was declared dead, but they said he'd been shot. It was very moving because my homeroom teacher was a history teacher. He was also, I think either a lay preacher or maybe he was a regular preacher. I don't know, but he taught debate. And so he, he went to, the closet and they took out a book of current event that would debate people use. It had speeches and he went and he started reading Kennedy's speeches to us. It was really quite moving 
then they came on and said the president was dead. It was it was really a serious it was serious everywhere, but then in, in Dallas, obviously it had a huge, huge impact. And my father had actually met Jack Ruby, so I was actually watching live on television when Ruby shot Oswald. Um it was the whole thing felt, you know, too close for for realism. It was just it was the whole thing was surreal and yet it was very physically close to where we were. And that's uh, everybody was impacted around the world and around this country. But if you actually were there, there was an extra sense of uh, of urgency and of, of uh, you know, of fear. You know, you walk past that theater, I'm sure, a thousand times. It's right there in your neighborhood, yeah. and, and it must have uh, really twisted your head around. Um, I also read it somewhere, uh, Larry, that, that you went to school at your high school with some other guys who have been very successful singer-songwriters in their own right. And I wonder if you could talk about that and, and if you had a relationship with those guys. Yeah, the, there was funny enough, over like a five-year period, uh, might have either four or five, I can't remember. There were four four of us who went on to have careers in music and, you know, varying degrees of success, but all had national careers. The oldest was the guy that we called Mike Murphy, who was Michael Martin Murphy, who had a big career. He wrote, you know, Wildfire, Geronimo's Cadillac, a lot of things, and he was the oldest. And somebody we looked at is like, wow, he's he's quite, you know, quite quite the thing to pattern yourself after. Sure. Uh, try to do what he's done. I remember when he went out and he he played at the local. There was a local coffee house called the Rubiot in Dallas, which was there for a long time. And he would play there, and that's where all the people would play. All the people, even Jerry Jeff Walker, people that came through from from other places as well as locals. And Michael had a, a partner named Owen Castleman, and they called him Boomer. And so they, they together, they had a, a deal together, and then Michael had his own. And Michael went off to college at UCLA. Meanwhile, the older one year older than me was, was Ray Wiley Hubbard, who has now, just now, actually, he's in his peak of his career at the age of 73 or 4, whatever he is. Uh, and he's, he's continued along... Uh, back, his first kind of bump nationally was a song called Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mothers, that he wrote and Jerry Jeff Walker recorded, became kind of an anthem. Uh, and Ray's always been a funny guy and a very clever songwriter. And, and now he's kind of, uh, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the old heads and, uh, kind of philosophical leader of a lot of, a lot of folks. And I've known Ray. Ray and I were in a group together at Judd Band. We, we played at that Rubyot. We were a regular there at the Rubyot and our, our jug band for a summer. Uh, and then younger than me was one year younger than me. We were actually on the, the football team together. He was, uh, was, was a guy named, we call his name was Chuck Stevenson, but he took the name Buckwheat. So he turned out to be B.W. Stevenson, who had a couple of hits. Uh, and back, he sadly died in his thirties because he had a, a, uh, I think a hereditary heart problem that has killed his father too. But, he had a hit called My Maria. Sure. And he also had the first, he had the first version of Shambhala that I think Three Dog Night then picked it up and they both went up the charts and I think Three Dog Night got a little bit higher, but 
But BW is a nice guy, very cool voice. Um, so it was just odd that there were four of us in that four or five year period that went to that high school, just happened to grow up in, the, in that part of Dallas. There were there were big time people in other in North Dallas. So we well, always North Dallas was always the richer part of town. I I joke and I say Oak Cliff was the West Virginia of Dallas. <laughs> it was uh, and it was uh, you know it was a part of town where when people found out you were from there, they assumed certain things. Yes. Um, but it was, uh, you know, but that's where Stevie Ray Vaughan was from there. There was a lot of people that were from there. Edie Brickell was from wow. Oak Cliff. There's, there's several, so, several people from Oak Cliff. And then there are some from the other side of town. I met some of those too. Michael Nesmith grew up in the rich side of town. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I didn't meet him until later. I didn't meet him when I was growing up. But I met a lot of people like Mickey Raphael, you know who he is? He yeah, plays, sure. He's the one that's played harmonica for years at Willie Nelson. Yep. He hung out at the Ruby. I first met him there, and later he went with Willie and stayed with him for years. Um, it was a it was a hangout for kind of folky country um, singer songwriter people, and uh, it was it was a good good way to to grow up. And I've kept in touch with Ray. He's been on mountain stage now twelve or thirteen times, and Michael Murphy, Michael Martin Murphy's been on several times too. As I said, B.W. passed away long ago, long before Mountain Stage started. So it's interesting to me, Larry, that, that you said earlier, you know, you turned 18, you never lived in Texas again, despite sort of this, this background. You went away to college in Illinois, is that right? I did. It was a tiny school in Illinois that I got a scholarship to, and it was a religious school, and I was very straight. I mean, I, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't take drugs. Uh, and I uh, so I, I fit in to this atmosphere and, but I was still singing and songwriting. Uh, and, and it, it got me away from Texas. And then in the summers, I was thinking about this earlier today because of all the things that are happening in the street. Every summer I did something different. I would, I would go home for a few couple of weeks or three or four weeks. Then I left again. The first summer I went to Europe and I traveled all through Europe with another fellow on bicycles. Wow. We went like almost five, 4,500 kilometers from England up to Scandinavia, back to Germany to France and Spain, and then uh, all on bicycles. Uh, we would every now and then we'd put them on a train or something, but basically most of the trip was just pedaling. We did that the first year, and after my second year, it was the time, it was 1968, and we took a trip around the United States in a VW that he had, a bug, and he was from Chicago, so we started there. So we actually went to observe the... Um, we weren't demonstrating so much, but just observing at the convention, 1968 Democratic Convention, where there were people in the streets and the clashes with the police and the young hippies and so forth, in which, you know, we were there, we were that. Then we traveled all around America, and I thought a lot about that because, you know, that was a time of turmoil and got involved in some protest marches and et cetera. And then I went again to Europe after my my third year. Uh, so... I mean, just never ended up going back home for very long to Texas. And then I got married right after college was over, like the week after I graduated. I married, got married. And then I never, we didn't live in Texas. We moved to New York City. I wonder how much that, that time that you spent abroad and that time you spent exploring America uh, influenced your worldview on things. You know, sometimes I think that we can be somewhat navel gazers and only – 
experience what's in our immediate environment without having sort of that big world view. So as a young cat, I mean, you're 18, 19 years old and, and you're skipping across America and skipping across Europe. Do you think that that changed your outlook on things? There's no question. It profoundly changed me. I was 19 when I went to Europe and I really had never been out of Texas all that much. Certainly had not been East. When I was a kid, we traveled West some, uh, but we never went farther east than Missouri. And so when I went to get even to get on the plane, I remember getting, uh, going on a bus through, uh, Pittsburgh and everything looked different. It looked dark. It looked old. You know, when you grew up in a, in a town like Dallas, which had one log cabin in the 1840s and you go see cities that started in the 1700s, then it's a different experience. And, it was it was interesting. I remember the first time I was first time I went to New York City, and had a great experience. It was pretty interesting. I don't want I'm not going to go into all of it, but then we went to Europe, and it was the first time that I could see my country through the eyes of other people. And I loved America. I still love America, but you know we we are one country. We're a great country, but we are one country, and we don't do everything right. And so I could see. This and I could see how much people loved America too. It was unbelievable. Uh, we would, on this bicycle trip, we would, we were in towns, not very, and we stayed in cities some. We stayed in some hostels and some, some other people that we'd met. But in the country, we would stop and ask people if we could sleep in their barn. And half of them said, come on in the house and wow. sleep. They didn't know us from Adam, but they felt secure because we had bicycles. We weren't threatening, we weren't in cars. We weren't, you know, hitchhiking. We had bicycles, and that seemed to kind of calm people down. Anyway, they took us in their house. There were people that we met people in Scandinavia. I remember one beautiful spot, and they had a picture of John Kennedy in their house. It was really, it was very moving to me. And of course, it was a big topic that I was from Dallas. Sure. But and then, and don't forget, this was 1967. and I. We went to France and places. My dad had fought in the Battle of the Bulge in Bastogne. And we went to places where people were profoundly grateful that the Americans had saved them. And, you know, I thought, wow, and I saw buildings that were, that were had, had, you know, bullet holes in them, cannon holes, and they'd been repaired. And I realized, I, I didn't then, but now I look back, that's only 22 years after World War II is over. Right. So, yes, of course they were... They were thinking about that. How could they not be? You know, and people we had, uh, it was really, really fascinating. And the, the way I, it just made me feel like we're all part of one world, you know. And I think that's really important for kids and for people. It opened my me up, made me love mankind a great deal because people were so good to us. But it also made me realize that, you know, I had a lot to learn and that I, I had to, you know, this was a, a big world. And there was a lot of viewpoints. There's a lot of things, and a lot of people had been in civilizations that were far older than than where I grew up. So it was it was you you hit on something very important because those travel years that year and then the next year traveling around the USA, uh, it was adventurous. I met a lot of people, did a lot of things, uh, and learned a lot of things. You know, the about uh, for example, I had long hair back then, down to my shoulders. Okay. And and this was a time of, of just like now of people that were separate, 
And when people saw that, they assumed certain things about you. Right. And uh, I remember being in Louisiana, and a Volkswagen, both of us had long hair like that. The car truck came up beside us and spit on the car. And and I realized why. But then I thought, you know, this is this gives me a tiniest hint of what it would be like to be black or brown or something else. And yet all I have to do is cut my hair and those people won't think the same about me. Whereas the other people don't have that option. And so I thought about that at that time a great deal. And, and I realized, cause I grew up in segregation. I grew up in colored bathrooms and colored what drinking fountains. I remember drinking out of one that said colored. My, my mother stopped me and I said, why, why can't I drink here? She had no answer of course, but that's, it's all things that they forced me to think about this stuff and the way the different, you know, parts of the world, different parts of our country uh, reacted. I don't know. It was a very big, you, you hit on something very important. Those, those two summers were no doubt as important as all of the schooling that I, that I did in the four years of college. Although I, I was glad because I got introduced to a lot of great things in that, uh, in the schooling, especially literature. I was a literature major. So I was glad I, I did that, but traveling like that, I think traveling, especially traveling far away, you know, out of the country. So you get a perspective on your own country from elsewhere. I think that's important. I think that's huge and, and very insightful and, and clearly has influenced your whole life. And uh, by the time you moved to New York in the early seventies, you'd already recorded your first album. I think it was a, a gospel album, if I recall. And, and so then you're in the folk scene in New York city in the early seventies. And I wonder if you can paint that picture for us. What, what was that like? We know what we see in movies and what we hear on TV, but what was it like to live in the middle of all that? Well, it was, uh, it was definitely of another time. I was at the end, you know, the, the early sixties were kind of the beginning and the boom. I played at Gertie's folk city, which was one of the center places for all the folkies, but it was after the peak of Gertie's, Right. Although things were still going on there. Things were still happening there and people would still go there. And I played at the, 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 the bitter end and uh, places that, that, I mean, I remember opening one time for, um, Eric Anderson, folk singer. And in the audience, funny enough, this is funny because I played, I played the dulcimer. I learned how to play the dulcimer. Uh, uh, and I, I was playing at the, at the, at the other end. This was actually after I moved to West Virginia. It wasn't when I was living in New York when I moved back. I mean, I moved back to, to, I moved to West Virginia, but I was in New York playing. And, uh, it was still, you know, 1974, three, something like that. And I played the Dulcimer and in the audience was uh, Dion, you know, sure. Dion DeMucci, Dion and the Belmonts. And, and he was sitting with Bill Russell, the basketball player. <laughs> <laughs> and after, after I, after I, they asked me, come over here for a minute. It was an instrument. So I brought my dulcimer over and I was just a lap dulcimer. I was showing them how it worked and they were very fascinated by it. So, you know, that, the city of New York is still New York. You're going to run into people. And, and I ran into some interesting people that the fellow that I, I played at a, at a club called the focus, which was run by two mom school teachers who liked photography. That's why it was called the focus. And it was a organic restaurant. Uh, and then upstairs was like a coffee house kind of thing. And you, you didn't get paid, but they passed 
a basket. And you actually made pretty good money. You made more money during that usually than you than you did if you got paid for a regular gig. Right. And so I would do it. And we there was a, a, a roving group. There were four of us that kept every night a different person. And one of the four was the wife of uh, the, one of the guys who ran it. And she was Melissa Manchester. Oh, wow. And so she was just starting out, young young girl singing. And it was very good, obviously. And then there was another, me and two other guys. And so I got to watch them and watch other people in, in New York. And, and again, Melissa and her husband, Larry Bresner, he ended up going to work for Rollins and Joffe Management and being a movie producer and then moving to L.A. and um, being hugely successful. Uh, man, and Rollins and Joffe was... Some of their clients was like Woody Allen and Dick Cavett and I think uh, Billy Crystal, those kind of people. Uh, they did mostly comedians. Later, it helped me. It helped me because Larry helped me get a tour with Martin Mull when I had the hit song, and so I went out with Martin Mull because he was one of their clients too, and and that worked out worked out very well because my my music was music, but it was also you know funny stuff. So his audience was great with me. But in any case, it was that that scene was there. There were clubs. And, you know, wasn't, didn't pay a lot, but that's also where I got the idea for John Food Judge because I never, I didn't know what an organic restaurant was, of course, <laughs> until I moved to New York. I'd never heard of an organic restaurant and then I learned what it was with the brown rice and all that stuff. And, and yet, you know, I grew up just the opposite. So that's how the whole junk food junkie idea came is in the daytime and the nighttime, you know, I had two sides. Except everybody I met there, most of the people I met there, there were a few that were real true believers, but most people just ate there and then they went out and got a burger the next day at McDonald's or whatever. <laughs> so Larry Gross is our guest today, and, and I want to talk to you about Junk Food Junkie, which was this huge novelty hit in the mid-'70s. But you and I have West Virginia in common. I grew up there. You did not. You're a West Virginian by choice. And I don't think I've ever told you this, but I remember distinctly as an elementary school age kid in Logan County, deep in the coal fields in West Virginia, there were a couple of guys that came in uh, as artists in residence. And this is, you know, I'm in the fourth grade, third and fourth grade. There was one guy I still remember, a, a long haired to my you know 10 year old brain, long haired hippie guy uh, in a van, a VW van, who was, uh, his name was Mike uh, Savage. And I couldn't quite pronounce that as a kid. So I think I called him Mike cold sandwich. And, uh, and Mike was a, he was a painter, and, and he taught art classes as an artist in residence that you could go to after school. There was an, uh, a musical artist in residence as well that would come around to all the elementary schools in the county and, and teach us about mandolin and dulcimer and Appalachian music. And you were one of those guys. That's how you first came to West Virginia, right? It is. I, I, I was living in Los Angeles. I went to New York, and then from there I moved to Los Angeles. I got a record deal with a company that was a subsidiary of RCA called Daybreak Records, and and I made a couple of records for them. And I I released it's funny because I released my, my first record at the same time John Prine did because they both got reviews in the LA Weekly. Wow. It's a, it's a, both got both got good reviews, and and he went slightly farther than me. <laughs> he did okay. But he yeah he did he was he was a great singer and songwriter both. But that's, that's, that dates when it was. And I was not happy out there particularly. My wife was definitely not happy. And I thought, I, I got to do something that I don't, I don't know what to do. Um, and I thought, uh, I got a call out of the blue sky. 
from somebody I did not know. Who turns out to be a fairly famous guy. His name is Lunas McGlowan. L-O-O-N-I-S, I think. He's from North Carolina. And he he's a musician and I think a jazz player. And he, he had a lot to do. He was he wrote the theme song for Charles Corral's On the Road CBS show. Okay. Uh, he, he, he knew a lot of people. Charles Corral was from North Carolina, too. Anyway, I think the connection was that first gospel album I made was produced by a famous old band leader, or he was assistant producer, called Kay Kaiser. And if, if people, that's a name that no one knows now. But Kay Kaiser was huge, hugely famous in the 40s. He got the first million-dollar contract on radio, and he was involved with his church, and he got involved in helping because I had never made a record, and I didn't really like the way it was sounding. And he came in, and he didn't like it either. He agreed with me, and so they remixed it and so forth. Um, and so he was. I stayed in his house and did some stuff, and I think he was friends with Lunas. But anyway, the National Endowment for the Arts were looking for some a few musicians they had a program called Music in the Schools, and it was just a pilot program. And they wanted to pay people to go to certain places. There was one in Connecticut, one in New Orleans, West Virginia, and there may have been one other one. And they paid us very well, but it was a nine-month pay, and that's it. You did a nine-month program, and you're supposed to visit school. But it really was open. You did... You had to figure out what you were going to do. You had to go to schools, but then you also were supposed to help the community, and they had a budget that you could help people buy instruments and stuff. And so I took it very seriously. I had never gone into school. I didn't know what to do. But I found out that I could go not just to perform. I did perform, but I also started helping kids write songs. That's what I thought I could do. And so I ended up doing that. And I did that for some years, even after Junk Food Junkie, traveling around the country. But that's how I got to West Virginia. It was a nine-month program. And I was assigned to three counties in West Virginia, three very rural and large counties, Barber, Tucker, and Randolph counties. And so I, I made rounds up there. Like one day, I had, driving from school to school, I ended up driving 126 miles because I started out in Philippi, drove up to drove up to Tucker County, then way back down to southern Randolph County, and then back home. So I got to see that. The, and I love this place immediately almost. The people... They, they, they seemed so familiar to me because it seemed very much like my grandparents and, and I had a, one particular aunt, a great aunt who I used to go visit out in the country. And all of these people seemed just like her. So I, I liked it very much. Uh, and and uh, so did my wife at that time. And, and we just, after the first nine months, we're trying to figure out what to do. And Randolph County said, we want you to come back again. The program is over, but we're going to hire you from our school money. So I just the second year I did it just for Randolph. But then after that, I think they're willing to hire me again, but I said, I got to get back. If I try to be a singer, I got to get back into the world outside of here and, and try. So that's when I went back to Los Angeles in 74, looked for a manager and so forth and, and kind of restarted my career, which had taken a couple of years off because I didn't really travel and sing much when I was here. So that's how I got here. And that's how I fell in love with West Virginia and, it's been a long-lasting love affair. I love I love the state. There's a lot to criticize about West Virginia, but my opinion is there's a lot to criticize about everywhere. You just gotta what what's more important to you. The parts that are good to me are, are very important, and the parts that we lack are not so important to me. So, uh, I the main thing is the people, the way I'm treated, 
the way people are treated, the way people treat each other is, is really to me kind of where I wanted to raise my children. And I didn't have any children in my first marriage, but when my second one I did, and sure enough, I'm glad they were, they're West Virginians. I'm glad they were raised here. A West Virginian by choice, Larry Gross is our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast. So you spent a couple of years in small town West Virginia and then back to L.A. And I don't want to say out of nowhere because you've been a working musician for many years, but kind of out of nowhere, this novelty song that you've written becomes a huge, and I mean huge, national hit. So if you can, take me back to when you realized that because of this one little song, Junk Food Junkie, you'd written, your life is going to be different forever. Is there a moment that sort of crystallizes all that? Um, yeah, there, what, what happened with that song was every singer-songwriter, if, you're, if you play by yourself and you don't have a band, in my opinion, you have to have something that's more than just your songs. You have to have some comedy. You have to be a great uh, guitar player. You have to have something or play more than one instrument so that you can keep the audience interested and entertained. And I couldn't, I wasn't a great guitar player and I, I did play the dulcimer, but, and I, and I did that on purpose, but to, to mix it up a bit. But I also found that I could write like a song that, comedy song kind of songs that were satiric and I had been a fan of of comedy songs and so forth novelty songs when I was a kid I mean I liked them I thought they were funny some of the first things that, that I listened to the ones that became hits um, and, and I liked I liked the, the, uh, the whether they were just blatantly commercial you know Ray Stevens or whether they were more satiric and, and more highbrow I liked it all um so I, I would write some songs, and, and Junk Food was one that I wrote in my van. I had a Volkswagen van. I was traveling from West Virginia to Boston to play a club there. And I wrote it in my head. It had to do with thinking back to that place in New York. And so I wrote it. I just wrote it in my head as I was going along singing. And when I stopped, I got my guitar out, found the chords for it. So during that week at that club, I sang that song. And it went over huge. It went over huge. So I knew it was a popular song. And I ended up writing three or four other songs. I wrote one about bumper stickers, one about television. I wrote several kind of songs. that, you know, And I would drop in some short parodies and things, too, just to make people laugh. But that song, I never thought about releasing. I got a manager, and I was, I was playing at McCabe's Guitar Shop in L.A., which still goes on. A lot of big-time people play there, and I was happy to play there. I played there several times. I didn't know that they were actually recording my set. They didn't tell you. They should have told you, but they didn't. And later they told me and my manager, and he said, wait a minute, you're not supposed to do that without telling us. And I said, oh, sorry. He said, give me, you have to give me a copy of it. And so they did. And so we had this live recording, and Junk Food went over super well. So he said, why don't we try to release this as a single? And he tried to sell it to record companies. Nobody wanted it. So formed a record company ourselves, and hired a promo guy, and we put it out and worked it in three states. I think it was California, Arizona, and Colorado or something like that, three or four states. And we started hitting airplay. And we couldn't do this anymore. This, is, this, this was long ago. This is 1975. Right. You know, it's almost like Loretta Lynn going to 
radio stations, you know, things you can't do. You know good and well, you're not that old, but you know good and well that when you were a kid, that things happened. Yeah, in yeah, radio, things happen that just don't, could never, <laughs> ever happen again. It's too programmed, it's too centrally, you know, programmed and so forth. But our deal was there were still some disc jockeys who had their own choice of what to play, which doesn't happen anymore. And so like, some of them hooked on to this record because it was funny. And it had, you know, it had laughter on it, and then they sweetened it a little bit. And also we overdubbed bass and drums because it it was just me. And I'm sure the bass and drummer were cussing every step of the way because I didn't keep good time, of course, (laughs) being by myself. So they had to try to adapt to my stupid pauses and everything. Uh, And then I think my manager added a little bit more applause and laughter here there. He he didn't add it where it wasn't, but he sweetened up what was there. Uh, And... And, and put it out, and it started getting airplay. And and people got a kick out of it. And, it was, you know, a DJ could work with it. They could make fun of it. They could they could do uh, giveaways. I mean, you could give away everything that's mentioned in that song for about 4 or $5. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, call in, and we'll send you the Dr. Pepper and a bag of Cheetos and whatever, you know. Whatever was in it, all the different things that were in it, ding-dongs, ho-hos. So... It started going up the charts, except you couldn't buy it. We didn't have distribution. So we find out. They said, well, your song's number 22, but we can't go any further because people can't buy it. So we'd say, what's the name of the record stores in your town? They'd tell us we'd just send them free records. And they'd sell them. <laughs> so that we could... Then we, meanwhile, we were still trying to negotiate, and we finally made a deal with Mike Curb for Warner Curb. But it took a while... And so they told us, take it off the market. And we said, well, wait a minute, it's going. You can't stop it. It's like you can't stop something like that. Stopped it, and then they re-released it a few months later. We thought, that's it. They killed it. But when it was re-released all over the country, it went up the charts, which surprised us. And it lasted a little longer than novelty songs usually last because it was a little different than the normal novelty song. It wasn't, uh, uh, you know, My Friend the Witch Doctor or something, Purple People Eater. It was, it was a little different. And and had some staying power, so it went up all the way to number nine in America, and it was like number two or one in Los Angeles. I don't think it ever got the top ten in in uh, New York City, but it was uh, may have been right right below it. But it definitely got to number one a lot of places. And because it had, I mentioned all these names, there was a little controversy now and then, which we used to our favor, because there were a couple places, including Pittsburgh. Funny enough, ironically that the song was going up the charts and it got to number 15 or 14 and then it disappeared. And the head of promotion at Warner Bros., the guy named Bob Merlis, who's still out there, his son is out there too, doing stuff. Um, Bob is a freelance guy. He must be in his 80s or so. But I was in L.A. when he found out there were these three markets that had disappeared. And he said, that's wrong something's wrong so we called them and they tried to dodge it like saying well just didn't you know not catching on he says catching on everywhere it's going up it's in the top 10 everywhere it's Pittsburgh's no different than Cincinnati uh, you know so they said well to be truthful we got some local McDonald's franchises they're putting the pressure on us they don't like the fact it's called junk food and so he said and I think it was McDonald's it was some franchise and that's the only one I think I mentioned so he said Oh, then you're censoring the song. Huh. They said, oh, no, we're not censoring it. We're not censoring it. And he said, well, yes, you are. We're going to put out a press release. 
They said, no, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Let's, let's, well, we'll get back to you. And the next thing you know, it's back on their chart going up to the top 10. And we, while we were in his office, my manager and I were, and he said, let's call the Dr. Pepper come and see if they object to this song. Cause he knew that every time Archie Bunker mentioned Twinkies on, um, you know, the, his, his television show, um, the sales went up on Monday. So we called the Dr. Pepper company and got their public uh, information person. And they, 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 they didn't say they endorsed it. What they said was, he said, what do you think about this? Does it bother you that this song mentions it? They said, well, the way we look at it, we're in the company of a lot of other great brands in that song. And uh, it, it mentions our name, and that's all we'll say. Love it. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I was, hel- I was careful that I didn't you know, single out one company. And it's also helpful that it's free advertisement. So no matter what you say, you can call it junk food or whatever, but as long as you're mentioning the name of their product, you're giving them a commercial. <laughs> that's great. Larry so Gross, that's, that's the writer the of Junk Food Junkie. Now, now, when you look back on that song after all these years, you know, many people who release novelty songs try to distance themselves from it. You haven't done that at all. You've embraced it. And I wonder about about that. Are you proud of that song when you look back on it? Yeah, I think it was a funny song, and I think it was a satire, and it made a point. And the only reason that song was popular, and we heard this from thousands of people, was it reminded people of themselves or of their friend, and they could joke about it. I mean, it was not. I wasn't pointing at someone else saying, look at that person over there, he's a fool. I was pointing at myself and saying, right. this is what I do. And so, uh, you know, are you like me at all? And many people said, yeah, I got to admit, I'm like you. Or my brother's like you, and I'm kind of like him too. And so it wasn't, you know, a put down of anybody. It was more, I think you, you know, if you're going to satire something, then it's good if, uh, if, the, if the finger turns around and points back at yourself too. Like, I'm not, I'm not innocent of this. I do the same thing and I'm trying to make fun of it because it is kind of stupid, but I can't help it. It was, and I, you know, I, it's not the best song ever written. It's not the greatest thing ever written, but it gets laughs even today, which is funny. And ironically, the food in the song is still for sale. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. I mean, never would I have thought that ever, man. Yeah, that stuff is, but when you got Dr. Pepper and Fritos and McDonald's and Colonel Sanders and, you know, even ding dongs and Twinkies. <laughs> it's all, it's all, they, they tried to kill hostess, but they couldn't. Somebody else bought it. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, it's just one of those things that there's some staying power to it. So, whatever. It's not, as I say, I, I don't claim to be a great singer songwriter and I don't claim to be a great star of anything, but I don't mind because that's, I think it's kind of a good hearted song and it's, it's a, it's a kid friendly song and I ended up, you know, because of my experience in West Virginia and things like that, I ended up also having a, a kind of a career with Walt Disney Records. Well, sure. I mean, there were a bunch of albums with, with Disney, and I think one of them was nominated for a Grammy, and uh, they were big gold and platinum sellers. You know, there were a bunch yeah. of kids of that era that that recognized your voice, I think, for for nothing except those Disney children's songs. And, and look, Larry, I, I don't know how you feel about it. We've never talked about it, but I would have to think that – being a guy that sings songs that make people happy has got to be a pretty good life. It's wonderful, and I, I'm grateful for it. 
And I got into the Disney thing because of Junk Food Junkie. I had the hit song. And I had a friend of mine from college who was working at Disney Records. And they were having a hard time with uh, one of their uh, projects. This was 1976 when Junk Food was a hit. And one of their projects of that year was a joint venture with Sears that was Disney and Sears. And they were, they were running, a, it was a presidential election year, and they were running a, a Winnie the Pooh for President promotion. And they, it was like, you know, they, they tried to say it was, it was a quasi-education. What it was, they put out a little book that talked about how you vote and how we vote and so forth with, with Tigger and Pooh. And then um, they, had, they wanted to put a record, a book record, and, and they couldn't get the song. And they tried two people already, and they didn't like the song. So my friend said, look, I got a buddy here that's a songwriter. Why don't you let him try? And the president of the company said, you know, your buddy, who cares about your buddy? And he said, wait a minute, my buddy's got the song that's number two on KHJ right now. He said, oh, that's different. Then I asked him if he wants to write a song. So I wrote a song on spec called Pooh for President. My friend took it in, and they said, that's it. So they said, we'll get Sterling Holloway to sing the Pooh part and the other guy to sing the piglet part. And they went to the studio, and the piglet guy couldn't really sing, couldn't make it happen. Sterling Holloway could. But the piglet had to do more of the singing, and he couldn't do it. So I went in and sang the piglet part. <laughs> and and then Pooh, Pooh was Sterling Holloway. And we were nominated for a Grammy for the best children's record of the year. And it went out to be a very successful campaign. I remember going to Chicago to the Sears Tower to do a publicity premiere of it with a bunch of kids and it was it was fun that was a fun thing but that got me started with disney and then later my friend uh he worked his way up so that he was head of disney records and so he he said look we've got to make we he had this idea i want to make some records which they hadn't done at that time since burl ives had made records of like american folk songs and public domain very well-known songs from the early parts of the century that people used to know them all you know Bicycle built for two, those kind of songs, as well as Oh Susanna and, and more and more folksy songs. Sure. Um, and so we made children's Disney's children's favorites, volume one, two, three, and four. And fortunately, and I, I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, but you know, I was I don't get royalties for singing those records; I just got paid via Astra. But on each of the records, he put some of the songs that I had written for another project that that they got me into, which was a Little Golden Books. They bought Little Golden Books, and they put out 20-something Little Golden Book records, and I wrote a song for at least one song for each one of them. Ended up writing 30-something songs. And so he put some of those songs onto the best, the Disney's favorites albums, and that's been very good over the years. They, I still get royalties on that. The first one was done in 1978, and I still get royalties from that. And I would imagine there are lots of uh, grown folks who come up to you now and say, look, you were a part of my childhood. I remember your songs on those Disney Absolutely. albums. Yeah, and, and I hear every now and then from people, but more is that every, I didn't even know this, but I look, I look online sometimes. I look up a certain Disney song that I wrote, and there's all of these people that have write in and say, oh, I remember that when I was a kid, you know, the, the, the remarks underneath it. Yeah, and especially the children's. Uh, I did two Christmas records, and and then all these other songs, and some of them were the songs that I wrote, 
And it's really very touching. There's still kids. Die. This last Christmas, somebody who was one of the board members of Festival said her her nephew was was in love with one of the songs that they got on this Disney record, which I made back in '78. And then, so I sang a song for for the kid. I she said, uh, "Could you possibly?" So I I sang a little bit of the of the song for the kid on you know on my phone. And that's that's you know this is a little kid now, and that's what that's um, 50 years ago. That's beautiful. Larry Gross, our guest today, and we're talking about his amazing and very diversified career in and around music. And, and, you know, at the height of your success, you're touring all over the country. You're on all the big TV shows, The Tonight Show and The Midnight Special and all that. But you made your way back to West Virginia at some point along there. And, and I would have to think that your manager, uh, who's, who's got this red-hot property in you, must think you're absolutely nuts to want to live in West Virginia and walk away from the bright lights in the big city. Yeah, I never did leave. I, I lived here, but my manager was out there. So I was always living here during all that career, but I wouldn't relocate back to Los Angeles. And I realized that it just, I just was not at incredibly happy in the, in the commercial world. It wasn't, it was not something that I was good navigating in. And I, you know, I don't know if I had the talent to keep it up, whatever it was, it just didn't seem right to me and ended up, I broke with that manager. Um, and I decided I'd just rather, I'd rather live here and not have to try to fight the, the fight of having another hit song and, and whatever else it took. But I had that little splash and it was a big splash because I did a lot of TV shows and was on, you know, people magazine, the whole thing. Um, but I, I just, I found that I would rather go around and sing for smaller crowds and, and work with kids to write songs. And then in 81, had the opportunity to start doing something here that turned out to be mountain stage. And I didn't, I couldn't predict that either, but that, that sounded great because it was a way to stay home and do something with music that I liked. And, and I got a chance to, instead of having to try to fit into the commercial music world, I got a chance to kind of create a world of music, of music that I liked. And I always was a, a fan of live music. My, some of my favorite records as a kid were live music records. They were I liked them better than the regular studio records. So that's how, that's how that started. And it went from a pilot in 81 to the first regular show in 83 and then it slowly accelerated till by the late 80s which was only 10 years after junk food we had a a going concern that was starting to get picked up by a lot of stations and, and thank god miraculously it's still here <laughs> well look there's a, a whole nother group of people that may not be familiar with you and junk food junkie or as the the guy who sang those great children's songs, but but that know you as the host and secondarily as the artistic director for Mountain Stage. So you did the pilot in '81 and the show launched in '83. Where, where did the idea come from? Well, the idea came from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Um, the general manager there at that time, and then was Rich Eisworth, and he he told uh, Andy Ridenour. Uh, who was a producer there and a news guy uh, who hosted the morning show. And 
um, I had met Andy because Andy had been a, a commercial DJ. His name was his on air name was Jack Daniels, I think, in Beckley, um, back in the seventies, and. Andy, he told Andy that the uh, public broadcasting in West Virginia, which had two stations at that time, was going to expand and make some more towers, and it's going to become more of a statewide network. And it, now it's hugely a statewide network, but they were going to they were expand to five or six towers, and they wanted something, uh, some kind of a show they would produce that would be a statewide kind of a show, some kind of variety music show. And this was after Prairie Home Companion had started, so everybody was looking at that kind of two-hour model uh, live thing. So Andy didn't think that it was something he could do by himself. He was a producer. He knew something about music, and he had the tech person was Francis Fisher, who I had met because he was living in Elkins when I came to work in those three counties. Francis had been living, he's a West Virginian who had moved to New York City and had lived there for many years, I think nine or ten years but had a child and wanted to raise the child in West Virginia, so moved back here. And was living as a kind of a back-to-the-lander outside of Elkins in the country. But he had a great technical knowledge of not only how to engineer sound, but also how to build towers and stuff. He was the one that was going to design the, the towers and the microwave system and all that stuff. So, so Andy and Francis both knew me. And they said, why don't we call Larry and see if he wants to get involved as kind of the the host on air host and maybe artistic director. He knows more about music. And so it just was one of those serendipitous things where, uh, we did it and we were naive enough that we didn't know that you really couldn't do this. We, you know, we didn't have any money. We didn't have any, we'd never done it before and we didn't have any equipment. So we were like the perfect mates. We, we were, perfectly uh, set up to fail, which means we were protected because we had nothing to lose. So we said, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. And now what I, my only thing to them was they said, we want to do this statewide show. And I said, why don't we just say it's going to be a national show? How about that? Cause I'd already had the hit song nationally. I didn't want to say, well, now I'm going to just look statewide. And they said, okay, whatever, what, you know, whatever you want to say, who cares? <laughs> so it started out the same anyway. It's going to start out the same, being more statewide and local. So the first, you know, the first year or two, we got whoever we could get, period, because we didn't pay much money. And but then slowly but surely, begin to build. And one thing we had going for us was we were we were open to a lot of sounds, a lot of kinds of music. We didn't just say you have to be acoustic or you have to be folksy or you have to be bluegrass or you have to be country. We said. We're interested in a lot of different kinds of music. And that opened us up. When you do that, uh, you have a, a bigger pool to choose from to get better people. If you, if you limit your show and say, we're going to do only bluegrass music, you can do that. There's a lot of bluegrass out there. But as with every genre, there's some at the top, and then there's some in the middle, and then there's others. So you'll end up, you won't be able to get some at the top all the time. So you'll end up with, in order to keep the genre, you'll take whatever you can get in the genre. Right. So we said, no, we don't do that. We'll take bluegrass this week. We can get a really good bluegrass player. And next week, we can get a really good blues player. So let's get them. <laughs> so that's what we did. And then once again, they said, you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. You can't mix up genres. And people don't know what's going to be on. And they can't 
And there's still many stations that think that about Mountain Stage. It's, it's too scattered. It's too wide. But then there are some people, and we have about 250 of them now, who think, no, it's, it's really pretty interesting to do this. You don't have the same kind of music on every week, but that's okay. But that also comes from the 60s where, and you weren't even old enough to remember this, where DJs would play, you know, one thing that after the other that weren't related at all. You could play a folky and then play Miles Davis and then play Frank Zappa and then, you know, then place uh, an old-time folk musician off the Harry Smith collection. You could do that. And people would hang with it. So we throw back to that, throw back to the beatnik age, a throwback to the 60s, a throwback to just uh, maybe it's my going to Europe. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there. We don't hear very much of it. And it's nice to now and then. I'm not saying I'm not saying that you can listen to Mountain Stage and everything we put on, you're going to like. That's not true for anybody, except maybe me. But there's going to be some things you hear that you like, and some things you hear and you say, it's just like the news. It's like all things considered on public broadcasts. They do a bunch of stories. Some of them you're not that interested in, but okay, I've heard my three, four minutes of that. That's fine. Next, way Mount stage. You don't have to listen an hour of it. People are on for 15 minutes. That's not your cup of tea. Great. If it is your cup of tea, go look for their album. Go find more things like that. So that show, uh, Mountain Stage, which has been around now, uh, you know, and has grown steadily since the the early '80s. I think you said is on 250 stations now. There was a uh, public television component for a long time. It's heard all over the world through Voice of America. Uh, so it, it's I'm, I'm sure blown way past your expectations. How do you decide with all those musical genres? Uh, you know, what's going to go on? What, what what does that process look like? Because now with it being such a big deal for so many artists to, to you know, appear on mountain stage as a feather in their cap, you must have intense pressure from, you know, record labels and artists and managers to, who all want to be on there. How do you guys decide? Is it a, a Larry thing? Is it a group decision? What, what does that decision process look like? Well, it's kind of organic now. It's, it's always, I have the final say. But that doesn't mean that I always come up with all of the talent. Uh, we have people that are, work with us closely that are on our team will suggest they also keep, they keep more abreast of what, what is happening, what is, what's happening now, what is hot in, in our part of the industry. We're not, you know, we're not the Taylor Swift part of the industry. We're not looking there. That's, that's way too big and, and way too commercial. And the only time we ever put people like that on is when they approach us. Martina McBride came on Mount States because she approached us. REM came on because they approached us. And we had Robert Plant scheduled before it was canceled, and I hope he's going to come back because he approached us. We didn't waste our time approaching famous people like that because they don't need the exposure of Mount Stage, but some of them want to do it for their own reasons. And so that's, that's how we hear from those kind of people, the big name people. Um, and we hear, of course, from publicists, from managers, from agents, from record, as you say, record companies, less so because there's less record companies now. Right. We still hear from record companies sometimes, uh, about new artists. They know that we're one of the few places that will play somebody who's very up and coming. Uh, even sometimes before they even have a record or before the record is released, 
if we like it. And there are certain genres that know singer-songwriters and Americana and alt-country and indie rock and indie pop and things like that, that that are peripheral. They're not the mainstream of commercial music. They're not getting played on big radio stations, uh, although they might at some point get played, but they're not at that point yet. Uh, and sometimes it's just because of their style. It's also ethnic groups. I mean, groups that play Cajun music in Zydeco, it's unlikely they're going to ever have a hit, but they know they could possibly get on that stage and widen their audience. And that's true for bluegrass and true for blues and, uh, you know, true for um, international music, world music it's called. Uh, they There's an audience. It's a smaller audience. Celtic music, those kind of things. So we, we listen to a lot of music. It's pitched. We have a lot of music pitched to us. And obviously, like in any business, we have some agents that we've been doing business with for 30 years. When they call me with an artist, I will listen to that artist because they have a track record. I don't always agree and put their artist on, but I do a lot because they have good taste. It's not a deal or anything. We don't get anything out of it. There's no kickback or anything, but they're just, they bring good artists. So I'm stupid if I don't listen. Sure. And so we hear them for a lot of reasons. We listen to now we still get CDs sometimes. But we also, of course, get a lot of things online to listen to uh, and, try to keep up with it and I don't I'm not a person that I'm familiar with all the magazines from Rolling Stone uh, to Pitchfork to Pace to whatever else is out there writing about how this is the latest new thing we're not that interested in the latest new thing we, we'd like to know what it is and sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it isn't we're more looking for things that that we might be able to have back because five years from now they won't be the latest new thing but they're good and so we, you know, we we look for things with heart, things that have some wisdom in our opinion, things that people can listen to, maybe even be inspired, not just entertained. You've got to be entertained or else you're not going to listen, but maybe a little more than that. So it's I make the final decision, but I get suggestions from a lot of people, including the public. People write to us and say, there are so-and-so. That's led us to book people sometimes. We listen. And we make judgments, and sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we should have put somebody on, and we didn't, and it turned out they were they were better than we thought. And that's you know, we're not a hundred percent right, but I think that we put on people. The, the we we don't put on people. Thank God uh, for any other reason than we think they're good, and we think that people will get something out of them. We're nobody, we're not making anybody rich, and they're not making us rich. We don't have all of those kind of incentives that 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 serious commercial radio has or commercial music business has where fortunes can be made and not made it's you know as todd bird always says that you know there's there's hundreds of dollars to be made in folk music <laughs> yeah and that's before taxes uh larry gross is our guest today we're talking now about mountain stage which he's the artistic director as well as the host and you had mentioned earlier, Larry, that live music is always uh, you've, you've always been drawn to it. And for folks who are listening who are not familiar with Mountain Stage, it's a two-hour live performance piece uh, from Charleston, West Virginia, in the state capitol complex. And as I've attended Mountain Stage down through the years, I've always found it interesting and really gratifying 
at the people who come from all over the country, all over the world, who want to be in the studio audience for Mountain Stage. And, and I guess that show now has become something of a calling card for West Virginia and, and maybe even a you know an economic driver for tourism for the state. And, and that's got to be pretty gratifying to you to, to help your chosen home state of West Virginia shine all over the world. It certainly is. And we're grateful for that. And we do have every, every week when we do the show in Charleston, we don't do all the shows here. We go on the road and do some shows elsewhere, but we do the bulk of them here, as you said, at the catch at Capitol complex. And it's great. It's gratifying now that, um, we, an audience holds like 460 people. We have a full house Usually only about 30 or 40% of those people are from Charleston that come to see. The other 60% are from anywhere. Some of them are from close by, like Huntington or Beckley or Clarksburg or Morgantown. And some are from other states where the show is on and they're just curious because they've listened to it for years and they were curious what it was like to be there in person. And we try to give those kind of people when we find out about them, if, sometimes we don't know, but if we find out they're coming because they write us, we'll give them a tour backstage We'll talk to them personally. Because to me, that's what West Virginia is. That's an experience you get here that you wouldn't get elsewhere because they can't, you can't do that in New York. There's too many people. There's too much pressure. And here, it's different. So we want to make, make the things that are West Virginian, put them up front so we can be more personally involved with people. And it's great. It's great to have that. And we meet and hear about people all over the world. We have these stories anecdotally forever where People will be in Ireland and see a mountain stage teacher and say, oh, I love that show, you know, somebody from Ireland. And they listen to it on the Internet. We have now somewhere around two or 300, sometimes more, thousand downloads a month of people from, they just want to hear the show wherever they are. And you can go on, and we have about three or four years of podcasts that you can go listen to. And we're trying our best. We don't have the money, but... We're trying to dub everything into the computer. Someday we would like to have it so you or anybody could access anything that's ever been on the show. Not download it, but listen to it, stream it. So if you wanted, for example, if you wanted to hear Loudon Wainwright on Mountain Stage, he's been on 14 times, you might be able to go through there and listen to all of it. Recently we've been approached by uh, some connections with family of Warren Zevon. He was on Mountain Stage twice, and they were impressed uh, you know, by what they heard, we, we put out uh, a best of show that had some Warren Zevon things on it. So we just sent them some things to listen to. They may end up putting out something, uh, that would be, and, and we have so many great things in our archives by performances that you just can't get elsewhere. And many of them by people who have passed on, so you'll never get them again. But there were some magical shows where things happen that uh, quite a few, not just here and there, but quite a few, and certainly a lot of magical moments, magical songs that were inspiring and that uh, I'm glad we have them in the archives and they're not, we're not trying to get all that stuff downloaded because we've recorded on, we've recorded on every, every kind of uh, material. Our first recordings were reel-to-reel tape. And we've gone through that, that tape, CDs, mini discs, uh, then hard drives into right into hard drives. So we have all of this, and some of it's deteriorating. So we're trying to get it all downloaded so that we can save 
as much as we possibly can. We tried to be, um, you know, to do multi redundant. So, so nothing, we only, we had more than one copy of everything. We were always running two or three recording devices because we anticipated that it might be trouble. And we're just trying to get it all down there because someday, even after I'm gone, there's some great stuff on here. If somebody who really wants to hear uh, a cross section of American music, we've had many people like Daniel Lanois say that this is, you know, Mountain Stage was like a crossroads of world and world music and had, because we have some wonderful treasures that, that, um, that are unique. Nobody else has them because they were live performances on our show. What an amazing legacy uh, that, that you brought to Mountain Stage. And before we wrap up, Larry, I, I want to touch on, on the events of the world today. Um, the pandemic stopped live music completely. There's no real sign on uh, on a large scale and when that's going to come back. And we come sort of to the, uh, the waning days of the pandemic, we hope, here in America. And that's followed by these, these uh, protests uh, after the killing of George Floyd. And and uh, I want to ask you about both those things. First of all, you know, live music and the lack of it and what that's done uh, to you personally and, and what you see as the future of, of live performance. Well, nobody knows right now when we're going to be able to do full-fledged, full-blown live performance with full audience again. Mountain Stage is aiming right now at trying to do some shows in September, maybe with a limited audience. We don't know what the state of the pandemic will be. And we also don't know what the state of the artists will be. We're talking to agents. We're talking to managers. We're trying to get a feel of where your artists going to go out and what we have to do to try to make sure that they're safe and that the audience is safe. We're, we're having meetings about that. Because, you know, we have to get back with it. We, we, we can do best ofs and we can do repeats for a while, but we can't do that forever. And we don't want the show to end. So even if we can't get everybody that we might have gotten at one time, we can still get some good performers. And we're going to hope to try to begin to do some new shows at that time. As you know, the bigger performers, the more famous are the ones that probably don't have to go out as much. Right. They already have, they already have some income. The royalties are money they put away. Now, they may be losing money, big money, because they can't go out and do, do those uh, shows that they were going to gross, whatever, ten, twenty, fifty, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, whatever. They can't do that, so they're going to lose money. But the kind of people that can gross big money have big money already. And so they, they're the ones that can say, Black Robert Plant, I don't think I'm going to go to America. I don't think I'm going to do... He obviously does not need to work to make money. So we may not have as many of those. Even, not even not huge like that, but even the bigger names, because they may say, I'm just going to wait till next year when it makes more safe. But then there's some marginal artists, artists, artists that are somewhat known and you know established, but they need to work. They just can't rely on savings or investment or, you know, unless they inherited daddy's money or something, they got to work. And that includes most of the people that play on mountain stage. And those people, I'm sure some of them are looking for the time when they can get back at it. They've been, 
and everybody knows what's happened. A lot of people are doing things online, which is good. I mean, that's a good, and glad we have that because if this had happened 30 years ago, you'd be, you'd have nothing. And now at least you can do something online. It may not be satisfactory, but you have a chance of making money from it and you have a chance of reaching people with it and getting your, your songs out there your, and getting your product out there if you make recordings. So a lot of people are doing that, I know, and I know a lot of them personally, and some of them are doing okay. And some artists have, who, who are really established people that make their living from singing have been able to get some of the government uh, unemployment, even though they're totally gig people. I mean, there was, the original gig people are musicians, let's face it. Right. Talk about the, the gig economy. Well, that's where the word comes from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you have a gig. That's where it comes from. So musicians are that. They are that. They don't have employers. I've never gotten a W-2 in my life. I just get 1099s. So somebody pays me, and that's the way it is. Sure. So that's the way musicians are. But some of them have been able to take advantage. Some of them have had a hard time getting that. But others can show that, well, I've paid taxes on this amount of money and they've gotten some help, which they need dramatically. So I'm glad for that. But that's not going to go on forever. So we got to get back with it. And everybody's thinking like we are, of how can we do this safely? Can we do... It's the same problem that churches have and that theater, movie theaters have. Do we rope off every other... I'll, you know, at some point this will, um, the danger will be very low and won't have to worry, but that point is not going to be in the next few weeks, maybe not even the next few months, but you got to start thinking and planning on it. And then if things get better or if there's a vaccine or a cure or something, then all the better. But in the meantime, we're working on trying to get back at it and trying to get some live performances, even if it means having only a quarter of the amount of people in the theater that we usually have. Would we you ever do it without do. an audience at all? It, we, I don't think there's a reason to do that because we don't, first of all, you don't get the, the, the same reaction. People play different when they're in front of an audience than they do. I mean, you could go in the studio. That's, there's a lot of shows that do that already. They go in the studio and they play like that. It's different. With an audience, it's just different, and you can hear the difference, in our opinion. That's what Mountain Stage is. And plus, if we don't get some income from the audience, then it's going to be tough for us to survive. So we got both of those reasons. And, and not that we would never do something with no audience. It's possible that we will, but I don't think we can sustain doing that. Uh, we're going to do a special. It isn't a radio show. It's going to be a series of videos that... Some of the artists that we had to cancel have, have sent us videos. We're going we're gonna to put it out. Uh, the headliner will be Steve Earle. Uh, he sent us four songs from his West Virginia. Uh, you've, you've been involved in that a little bit, I know, publicity in the state. That's right. But we're, we're, Steve has written these songs and put together an album called The Ghosts of West Virginia that had to do with a theater production about uh, the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. Uh, 10 years ago, I guess it was. And so he's going to be one of them. And there'll be uh, a great, you know, Daryl Scott will be one of them, the Hayden uh, triplets and Malcolm Holcomb and a bunch of different folks have sent us, Karen Casey from Ireland. They were all going to be on the show. So instead we said, could you just send us a video, which they do because they were doing it for 
the fans anyway. So that we're going to put them together for a, an online presentation, but that's not a mountain stage show exactly. I'll be on video kind of hosting it, but it will not be a mountain stage show. We may, if we have to do a show without audience, at least a few shows to start, we may do that. But we can't do that forever. It's uh, The audience is one of, we have many factors that, that fund the show. And the audience is an important one. If we lose it, uh, it's, it's, it's losing, you know, 15%, 20% of our income. And that's that's going to be tough. Right now, we don't have any, so it's better than nothing. We we need to get some new shows, but um, right now we don't have much. That income is lost, but then we don't have the outgo either because we're not producing shows, so we're not paying. But we got to start. So that's the answer to that. We we prefer not to do it without an audience, but it's possible that we will. Lots of unknowns out there, and and. Lots of unknowns in, in terms of civil unrest, too. You talked about earlier in our conversation being around in 1968 for uh, the protests and, and seeing all that happen again 50 years later. I, I wonder what, what your take is on all of that. Well, I'm, I am, I'm grateful that this is happening, not because I want to see people get hurt, but because... We've never dealt with this subject, never. We've never really dealt with it. And we don't, it's very much like your own personal body. You may say to yourself, I need to eat better, I need to exercise, I need to do this and that. But most of us don't have the discipline to do that until there's some kind of a crisis. If your body tells you, oh my God, I'm hurting, something's wrong with me, then you might change. And you'll look to see how you have to change or what, what's the reason for things. And I think our body politic, our, our country has been forced through sad, through the sad situation we've never dealt with. We've never dealt with the racism that came out of slavery. We just never dealt with it 100%. It's always been slightly brushed under the rug. And we're starting to get and generations, some generations, my, my kids are some of the first who are truly not, not racist. They, they, you know, there's always vestiges of everything and prejudice about this and that, but they just don't see the world the way older people did. Right. And still do in many cases. And this is forced, uh, the, the people, the marches and the people, the demonstrations, it is different than, I mean, I saw Black Panthers marching in California in 68, and it was basically black people. Now it's all kinds of people, which is as it should be. I mean, we're, we all have to have responsibility, and it's high time we cut out this stuff, this, this kind of um, look the other way, oh, we're not prejudiced, but we all know that the court system or the police department or whatever it is really is. We can't have that. It's just we got to stop this. And and we we it, it you, you learn things. You can learn things the easy way or the hard way. Most of us, unfortunately, have to learn some important things the hard way. I hope it's not the real hard way. Um, because you know you get a certain percentage of the population, which we're also seeing during this pandemic. People who 
we just we we overlook when everything's going well. But they're the people that serve, that stock the shelves, and they don't get paid a living wage many times. We can overlook it. Oh, what's the heck? You know, they're in there, they're working, it's okay. Well, it's really not okay. And at some point, there's enough people with really nothing to lose, then you have a real danger zone. Because if you got nothing to lose, then this, you might do a lot of things out of desperation. And I, I hope that we get out of this pandemic and find a way through tax credits or whatever to help people who are working at least make a living wage. And then also to rid ourselves of as much as we possibly can of the kind of prejudice that comes from racism and sexism and homophobia or whatever it is. We just can't have this. It's because at some point it's going to blow up. I mean, not just a little pop, but a big blow. And, and that's, but I'm glad that this stuff is coming to the surface because you cannot heal something until you know you're sick. You can't get healed. So that's the way I see it. It definitely feels a whole lot different now and, uh, and different in a good way. I think a lot of people are, are paying attention. And for the last almost 40 years, you and your team at Mountain Stage have done an awful lot of bringing a lot of very different people together, and, and we love you for that. Larry, thanks for spending some time with us today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, thank you for talking, Brooke. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to talk about all this stuff. And uh, keep up the good work, and we'll be talking to you. That's my friend Larry Gross, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, the service of Speaker Match, wherever you go, whatever you do. Be kind to one another. Make it a great day. Thanks for listening.